Welcome to the Connected Communication Podcast, the show which explores how much of communication is nature and how much is nurture, sharing speaking secrets along the way. I'm your host, Christine Malani. Cade me the faulty, listeners. A hundred thousand welcomes. And an example of the reason why the Irish say thanks a million instead of just thank you. Today we're going down a rocky road, exploring what it means to be a native English speaker. I'm Irish. I speak Hiberno-English. Not Irish English, Hiberno. What's the difference? We'll get to that shortly. The language of my country is Gwelga, anglicised as Irish. At school we learn both. At home, if you're lucky enough to have a Gwelgor, a fluent Irish speaker who uses it, in your family, you'll speak it there. Later, you'll use it or you'll lose it, which I did, except for Kupla Fuckle, a few words. This loss was in part due to my sheer love of the language being destroyed by those entrusted with teaching it to me. But that's another story for another day. English isn't my native language, though it is my first language, or L1, as we'd say in the English language teaching world. And that's what we're going to explore in this episode. The English language was, let's use the term, brought to Ireland by the British, as it was to every other country in the world which now calls it their own. Now, there's obviously a much richer history here, but I'm neither linguist nor historian. All going well, I'll interview both as the podcast progresses. Stephen Fry, would you give it a try? I do know bits and pieces of the history though. So let's take a little dive now into how it came to happen that the Irish speak better English than the English themselves. English first came to Ireland back in the 12th century, when some of our Irish lords were feeling a bit greedy. They contacted lords across the waters, as we'd say in Ireland, in other words, in England, requesting their help in Ireland to take back some of the lands they'd lost to other lords. And that was when the first influence came. But it wasn't when English took over the land of Ireland. That happened much later on. In fact, some of the lords that came in the 12th century became known as more Irish than the Irish themselves. That's actually a very famous phrase in the history books, certainly the one I studied at school. It means that the lords who came over from England married into Irish clans. They learned the language and became more Irish than the Irish were. Later, in and around the 16th century when the Tudor monarchs came and we had the conquest of Ireland, is when English was formally introduced. The crown made it the language of the gentry in the 1600s. If you wanted access to education and any form of recognition, you needed English. No less powerful a driver in the 1600s than now were ego and status. Take away a sense of status and you take away a sense of freedom. English began to take hold, but not without a battle. Hiberno-English, as the late T.P. Dolan, a British-born Irish lexicographer, put it in a 2007 interview, is two languages in a kind of unruly shotgun marriage, fighting all the time over centuries for syntax, pronunciation, vocabulary and idiom. 
It therefore symbolises a healthy connection between two disparate and independent languages, Gaelga or Irish, and English, which is not the case in countries like Australia, America or Canada. In no other country to which English was transported did it mix with the native languages. That's what makes Hiberno-English Hiberno, not Irish-English. There are words in Hiberno-English that don't exist in the Irish language. There are other words which exist in Hiberno-English that don't exist in British English. Hiberno-English is therefore dialectally richer than the English spoken in the land of Ireland's age-old frenemy, which lacks such luscious turns of phrase as I'm after seeing a ghost and Is it home you're going? each based on the grammar of the Irish language. But we're not exploring my beautiful English in this episode. That we shall return to in the episode Things the Irish Say. Make sure you're subscribed so you know when it goes live. In the next part of this episode, the road, as I said, is going to get a bit bumpier, listeners. Much like it would if you took a wrong turn in the middle of the Irish countryside on a wet day. I said at the beginning, English is not my native language. When I was backpacking Australia, I detested meeting people being asked to speak my native language, my Gaelga, and not being able to. It was embarrassing. So too were the conversations about why we weren't able to keep hold of our language. I lost count of how many of my Polish friends would say, well, we don't speak German. Why did you not fight harder to keep Irish? I couldn't really argue with them. Our leaders allowed Irish to be reduced to second language status, finding opportunity and benefit in having a population that used English. And I can understand it from an economic perspective. There was great benefit to it, especially during famine times. But it doesn't mean I like it. Irish is still our national language, alongside English. There's been a push in recent years for a revival. Irish with Molly on Instagram is doing a superb job of bringing it to the world. It's also a recognised language by the EU. But for now, English is the first language or L1 of the majority. However, that doesn't make it native, in my view. It just makes it the language we speak. So what then is a native speaker? What does the term mean to you, listener? A person who learned to speak the language of the place they were born as a child rather than as a foreign language, as Merriam-Webster defines it. Or a person who has a C2 level of English, as defined by Education First. For those unfamiliar with the term C2, this denotes proficiency, according to the Common European Framework. This definition makes me giggle, actually. It extends to, say, uh, a C2 level of English allowing for reading and writing of any type, on any subject, nuanced expression of emotions and opinions, and active participation in any academic or professional setting. Let's translate that. It means that a native speaker or C2 level user of English apparently has the capacity to actively participate in any academic or professional setting, or what I would understand as in any conversation. If you're a reasonable person listener, you'll agree with me that this is sheer and utter nonsense. An academic, first of all, does not have the capacity to actively participate in a street debate with a drug dealer, any more than a drug dealer is likely to have the capacity to actively participate in an academic debate. 
In fact, it's nearly more probable that a drug dealer would be better able of the latter than an academic of the former, depending on the background of the dealer. Now, this might seem like a bit of a stretched example, so let's do another one. For what reason do you think Canada requires English speakers to take an IELTS exam? For those unfamiliar with IELTS, it's the International English Language Testing System, an academic and general exam taken to prove English proficiency for entry to university and for visas of certain countries. Why does Canada then ask so-called native English speakers to take it when applying for a visa? Because Canada knows that native does not mean proficient. ChatGPT doesn't even have the definition right. In June 2022, I posted an article called Don't Call Me a Native Speaker on LinkedIn and reshared it recently after speaking to a few people about it. After speaking, by the way, in case you think my grammar's wrong there, is Hiberno-English. It means having spoken to. So I reshared it, having spoken to some, a few people about it. And one of the best people I've met in the past number of years did what he does best and asked ChatGPT for a definition. Here's what it said. A native speaker is someone who has acquired a particular language as their first language or mother tongue during their childhood years. This means that the individual has grown up speaking the language at home and has learned it naturally through everyday interactions with family members, friends and other members of their community. Native speakers have a deep understanding of the nuances of their language, including the grammar, syntax, idioms and cultural references that are unique to that language. They are also able to use the language fluently and naturally without having to consciously think about the rules of structure of the language. It's important to note that being a native speaker does not necessarily mean that the individual is a language expert or qualified teacher of the language. However, their natural understanding and proficiency in the language can be valuable for various purposes such as translation, interpretation, language learning or cultural exchange. It misses some of the nuances and sensitivities my friend wisely pointed out. Indeed it does. It also neglects to note that whilst learning the nuances and acquiring natural fluency, speakers also naturally acquire the adaptations or inaccuracies of their country, region, locality and even family. This is as true of the English spoken in the UK as it is of the English spoken in Ireland, Malaysia, India, Singapore. English is a global lingua franca. There are over 150 dialects. In a future episode, we're going to explore some of them and see if you can guess where they're from. At school, I didn't know what a so-called native or non-native speaker of anything was. There were just people who spoke a language and others who didn't. What on earth did being a native have to do with anything if a person could communicate? Ah, the lessons we learn about our own and others' perceptions. There was a great YouTube, I think it was a YouTube short actually done, about a young Chinese lad who planned to come to Ireland and decided to learn the native language. Bless him, he learned Irish. And then when he got here, he discovered that nobody spoke it. As an English language teacher years ago, I can't remember separating native and non-native speakers either. Of course, I've used the term over the years because it was nurtured into me to use it. 
Well, I had students. They all learned English. All spoke one, many of them two or more other languages. The teachers were the odd ones out. But some of us. I had smatterings of Spanish. The bare bones of the Irish left of what I'd learned at school. A bit of Mandarin from my year in China. Some French from another five wasted years of non-communicative language learning. And a few other words in other languages that I'd picked up on my travels. There's a very famous phrase. Divided we stand, united we fall. Oh, wait, Christine, you've got that the wrong way round. Do I? The more globalised the world becomes, the more businesses are being united across the globe, the further divided speakers of English risk being, as long as we keep categorising them as native and non-native. So-called native English speakers simply do not always know more, understand more, or have the capacity to communicate more proficiently across cultures, countries or languages as the so-called non-native English speaker, who in many cases speaks English as a second, third, fourth, fifth or more language. The reason for using native and non-native has been bias and categorisation. It results in an ignorant belief that English belongs to native speakers. As one of my multilingual friends said, in a panel discussion we had on this topic in March 2022. But that full discussion will be hosted in Phenomenal Presenters after this episode goes live. It results in damage to the confidence of the multilingual speaker, often to the point that they will not speak up in meetings, challenge peers, colleagues or even managers when they're evidently wrong, for fear of using an incorrect preposition, not being able to understand or appearing unintelligent. It results in lack of career progression and people feeling a need to apologise for their English. It results in a loss of productivity, negatively impacted bottom lines, reduction in idea generation and missed opportunities for innovation, product development and invention. It results in ignorance, bias, argument, exclusion and division. I could go on. To blend a bit of Hiberno and British English for you here, listeners, Tis high time we nip this in the bud, despite the fact that the flower has already fully bloomed. In other words, we should have put a stop to this a long time ago, but we didn't. Now we need to put a stop to it before it becomes a problem, even though it's already a problem. As complicated as that might sound, it's not probably quite as complicated as the directions we give in the Irish countryside. We have a tendency to tell you all the ways not to go before we tell you the actual direction you should take. So what direction ought we to take here, listeners? Here's how I see it. The meaning of native has nothing to do with language. I'm Irish. English is not my native tongue, but it is my first language. If you're born in one country but moved to another, where English is the first language, you're not a native speaker, yet you might speak it with what's considered proficiency. Speaking a language, understanding a language, teaching or coaching a language and communicating in a language are not the same thing. Monolingual speakers do not always understand English better than bilingual and multilingual speakers. Monolingual English speakers are not always better communicators, speakers or presenters than bilingual and multilingual speakers. As a note to the native speakers out there, 
If you use big words and endless acronyms that make you feel intelligent but that nobody can understand, you might wish to reconsider your presentation style. Monolingual English speakers do not always work as hard as bilingual speakers, especially in English-speaking workplaces. Of course, the opposite can be true. That's the nature of everything. Up, down, in, out, black, white, positive, negative. To one, there is always another which counters the balance, allowing for equilibrium to be found in the adjustment. Sit on a seesaw alone if you don't know what I mean there. And in fact, recent neuroscientific studies have shown that bilingual individuals perform better compared to monolinguals on tasks that require attention, inhibition and short-term memory, collectively termed executive control. Because the bilingual brain has to code switch between different languages, more inhibition is required, making that a more habitual practice. The belief that English is owned by native speakers was nurtured across the globe during the reign of the British Empire. But the British English Empire has fallen. Approximately 373 million speakers are so-called native. Over a billion are non-native you're more likely to encounter a non-native speaker of English than you are a so-called native. There are over 150 dialects of English. In the US alone, there are about 30. So when people say to me, I want to sound like a native speaker, my question is, from where? What if you could sound like yourself and speak with a clarity and confidence that allows other people to hear and understand? What if everyone could realise that communicating in the same language requires adaptation by all speakers? What if everyone could realise that language doesn't need to be graded only for children or those who are neurodiverse? Divided we stand, united we fall. Unless we stop the categorization and labelling. Twelve score and seven years ago, America's fathers brought forth upon their continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men and women are created equal. Eight score years ago, Lincoln made that address. We're still fighting to realise that equality. It is time to stop using the terms native and non-native to refer to speakers of languages. It's time to stop patronising multilingual employees by saying things like, oh, you pronounced that perfectly. Or worse, stopping them mid-presentation and saying, could you speak more clearly? I can't understand your accent. It's time to create a safe space if you are the speaker who holds the power in the room, normalising interruptions when difficult concepts, words or phrases are used so they can be clarified. It's time to explain idioms, phrasal chunks and acronyms you use as standard. I don't believe in not using complex language. I love language and terms which exist across cultures and which don't. As you'll hear in this podcast, when I say something colloquial, I'll follow it with a simplified meaning. When conversing, I do the same. I watch my listeners for comprehension in case I need to paraphrase. It's time to stamp out the stigma, to squash the shame, to end the exclusion. How? Unite in celebration of our differences, 
Explore linguistic diversity in the workplace, on-site or online. Host language culture days. Ask staff to share their favourite phrases, words and customs. To share what's not appropriate in their cultures as equally as what is. Get people talking, comparing and understanding. Do this with an experienced coach or trainer like me or some of my counterparts. It's important to ensure psychological safety, respect and awareness across cultures and individuals when embarking on a journey like this. Face isn't just an Asian concept, as we have been nurtured to believe. It is, in fact, sociologically universal. Face is, according to researchers on the concept, distinctively human though the perception of its loss in social settings differs across cultures. Unite in celebration of our differences. Small talk is not the same in Ireland as it is in Finland. Meeting behaviours vary vastly across the world. Unite in celebration of our differences. If you expect others to adapt when they come to your country, require the same of yourself when you visit theirs. As we move forwards in what many are calling a new normal post-reset, it is time to embrace the reality that English is a global lingua franca with over 150 dialects. Nobody owns it. We all share it. It is time to seek inclusion by uniting in celebration of our differences, not just ticking fancy boxes that make organisations and nations look good on paper. Language knowledge does not equal communication proficiency. Your quest this week, listeners, if you so wish to embark upon it, if you're up for the challenge, is to unite in celebration of your differences with someone from a linguistic background you do not know much about. Explore, using the 10-question technique, with permission and respect, what makes your languages different or similar your cultures, your backgrounds, your experiences. Please share your learnings as a review comment or community post if you're a member. I'm Irish. English is not my native language, but it is my first, and I love it. As always, thanks for listening. Please like, comment, share and subscribe. Let's talk about this. Until next time, Banak Tiagas Buikas. For those of you who haven't heard it before, blessings and gratitude.